Welcome to the Attorney Review. I'm Bud. And I'm Truman. And this week, uh, there's some touching moments between the king and men-at-arms. In the curse of the Spellstone. What was your impression of this episode? What's the curse? Like, it doesn't seem like there's a curse going on. Lightning? I guess we'll get to that. It seems like there's a lot of questions that we've had that were answered in this episode, or at least hinted at. I was sad that we didn't get a chance to continue to explore Beastman and Skeletor's relationship, but... I think we got a window into Beastman and, and Skeletor's relationship because we saw a lot of Evelyn and Skeletor's relationship. So that gives context to Beastman and Skeletor's relationship. That's right. So we open in space, a cracked world in the background, lots of planets floating around. It's a really dense solar system in Eternia. Yeah, there's a lot of crap floating around, which it gives credence to the lost dimension where everything else gets sucked to thing we fade into another desolate wasteland there's lava bubbling in the background and some golden shining building in the distance there's a weird looking castle skeletor uses his zapper again to open the door while evelyn stands by and they exclaim the spellstone actually <laughs> literally i have in my notes the spellstone in all caps so evelyn it's like found it for Skeletor, and they give some back and forth about, like, ah, it's better work, Evelyn! And then she says some, well, like, it will. So she's found this ancient artifact or whatever for he, Skeletor. She walks over to it and starts babbling some eldritch nonsense. That is textbook eldritch nonsense. We pan over the beautiful countryside. There's a small village which hints at maybe Eternia having a real population. Sitting by a nice little stream, pan over to the castle. Folks are relaxing while Orko does some more magic. There's some classic Orko shenanigans. He does the witch hand is the little pebble in trick, but Prince Adam has sneakily grabbed it somehow. I want to know how that sleight of hand trick would work. So somebody else is trying to trick you in which one it's in, but then you manage to get it out of their hands without moving across the room. Yeah, Prince Adam has many powers. Is he abusing the, the powers of Castle Grayskull? Is teleportation actually amongst He-Man's power set? You have to wonder if Prince Adam ever transforms into He-Man for other reasons besides Skeletor attacking. What other benefits would there be? Well, he's got chores to do around the castle. Hey, go muck out the stables. He-Man could disintegrate that horse poop with one punch. <laughs> or a boulder just thrown at it. I guess so. Uh, doing chores quicker, impressing ladies. They didn't impress with He-Man, not with Prince Adam, so I don't know. There's a whole rom-com in there. They fall in love with He-Man. They find out that Prince Adam has been lying the whole time. We get our first big reveal as the king talks to man-at-arms. Dude, that was such a precious moment. They panned over to them with like swelling romantic music and the king had his hand on man-at-arms' shoulder and they're staring off over the kingdom. And like, it was, oh, it was beautiful. It was real cute. Man-at-arms, Duncan, we find out his name. His name is Duncan. I'm a little disappointed. Duncan's a pretty good name. I hope we don't have any Duncan listeners to be offended. Sorry, Duncan. Duncan, okay, Man-at-Arms is a cooler name. That's true. Has invented a weather-controlling satellite and demonstrates its power to the king. 
is it just shove clouds away? Is that its whole thing? Or does it actually like control like rain patterns and stuff? It seems like some kind of localized weather control. I doubt that it affects the weather on all of Eternia, but the way they demonstrate it's kind of cloudy. Man-at-Arms presses a button or turns a knob on what looks like a big red walkie-talkie, and the sky clears, but only briefly. Because then, dark clouds and lightning flashes because of only one thing, the spellstone. They reach that conclusion so quickly. Again, without context, without any other information, Man-at-Arms immediately there's only one thing that can do this, the spellstone. And then Prince Adam follows it up with... And it must have fallen into the hands of someone evil. Cringer is not interested in investigating. He had previously been catnapping underneath a table. Startles when the storm comes, hits his little Cringer head, and then just wanders around the castle. He like slowly follows Prince Adam over into the corridor, like a cat going to the other side of the house and fucking off kind of walk. Not a cat excited to go somewhere it almost seems like he walked into the room after prince adam on accident prince adam transforms into he-man and then we cut back over to the yellow castle in the desolate wasteland where skeletor and evelyn are arguing about who will rule after the storm has ravaged the land skeletor something to the effect of like when i rule eternia and evelyn's like you mean when we rule eternia so how does this contrast with Beastman and Skeletor's relationship? They're much more partners, or at least Evelyn sees it that way. And she has much more of an even footing with Skeletor. And I would think that's because her abilities and powers are much more useful than Beastman's. Notably, she has the power to zap things. Which, as we found, is the most powerful power in all of Eternia. It's trumped by muscles, but zapping is a pretty close second. Muscles is one, zapping is two, uh, cool looking swords is three. Orko is way down at like number 50 or something. I put him in like 60s, 70s. Evelyn transforms into the old crone and then disappears saying, a voice in the crowd is more dangerous than any storm. That sounds very ominous. We cut over and get a second appearance of the attack track stupid the goofiest vehicle in all of eternia he-man ram man stratos battle cat have all set off for the region of flame the region of flame home of the fire people and ram man does something useful which is being dumb and asking for context so who are the fire people and really all that they tell us is that the fire people are a tribe, that, a fierce tribe that don't like outsiders. That's it. That's who they are. But thank you, Ram Man, as a watcher for the opportunity for someone to do some exposition. I guess this uselessness is not limitless. The legend of the Spellstone says that it's in the region of the flame, which is why they're on their way. When suddenly a huge tentacle monster erupts from the lava lake and grabs the attack track. Well, they defeat the monster with the power of zapping through electricity. Some localized zapping. That was perfect. So they're looking for the spellstone, right? And then they cut back over to the countryside being destroyed by crappy weather. Everything's on fire. Lightning's everywhere. The villagers are... Oh, we see villagers. We do see villagers. Like, more than two. There's like a bunch of them. A small crowd. 
And they're just watching Tila and Man-at-Arms Duncan try to put out a fire on one of their homes. Is that the entirety of their fire department? Is Man-at-Arms in some contraption he made and Tila helping him run it? The civil services are limited to guards at the castle, and I don't think we've seen anything else. Yeah, this is it. It's just Man-at-Arms and guards. But, you know, the guards could be helping with like at least like a bucket brigade or something. Evil Lynn in disguise is watching them put out the fire and telepathically calls to the spellstone to get them or something. So the spellstone gets them and knocks out Tila specifically. And she goes completely limp, just knocked on her ass. So Man at Arms has to take her back to the castle. The villagers stand around lamenting that their house has been destroyed. All of their possessions have been lost. Villain starts stirring up some shit. Yeah, sneaks in. Uh, all of this trouble is caused by the meddling of the king and man at arms, the elder elders or elder gods. I don't remember. The elders of Eternia are mad at them. They're punishing us for their sins. Some classic rabble rousing there. It's pretty well executed. Is this the voice in the crowd that Evelyn ominously spoke of? More dangerous than the storm is revenge by the rabble. She asks them in the ancient times, what was the way that we punished evildoers? The creeping Horak. I'm excited about whatever that is. He-Man and friends arrive at the temple to find the pedestal that normally holds the spellstone empty. They wonder where it went for about one second before Skeletor has to break the tension and announce his presence. He's got his... Uh... Robot army back, too. We haven't seen them for a few episodes. Where do those things come from? Who knows? Does he have a factory or something? He's got a in the bowels of Snake Mountain. There's a lava flow. That'd be a pretty good supply of raw materials and heat and melting stuff. Or maybe that is literally the iron forges of his robot factory going. We get our second jaw-dropping reveal as the king and queen are overlooking the rabble outside the castle. The king's name is Randor. Which is actually pretty close to your... As Roland. I, was, I, I knew it started with an R, and I don't know if I remembered that or not, but I, I was right-ish. Yeah, either way, a very kingly name and guessed by you. I'm going to ride that high as I go in to fail the message of the day. It's a good one. They watch from the balcony. Disguised evil Lynn is blaming King Randor for all the trouble, continuing to rabble-rouse. Tila immediately recognizes the old woman's voice as Evil Lynn. Doesn't tell anybody, but runs off. Yeah. <laughs> Not they are any of the people who fought against Evil Lynn that would know who she is and would trust Tila and that say, oh yeah, that totally is her. No, she'll just handle it on her own. Evil Lynn demands the creeping Horak, which is much less exciting at first than it sounds. It's a small gray box that one of the elders of the village is holding. Tila yells from the distance that the old woman isn't what she seems, throws her magic golden bolos, and ties up Evelyn. Evelyn's response to this isn't to like incur the wrath of the mob she's leading against the privileged nobles that are clearly attacking another serf. No, it's to reveal herself as Evelyn and try to get out of it. That would have been a way better plan. Oh, look, they just totally attacked me. Look how bad these kings are. Keep killing them. We need a revolution. And not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but that 
is their downfall near the end of this episode. Evelyn, after transforming, grabs the gray box of the creeping Horak, throws it against the castle walls where it explodes into this black goo that starts crawling all over the walls, absorbing the castle. King explains it, actually, what it is. While they're running away, King Roland does not miss an opportunity to monologue. So it's like how they used to punish criminals back in the day. They trapped them in their house. This creeping Horak thing would slowly grow over the walls and suffocate them to death. This is a dark episode. Yeah. Uh, it's a horrible way to die. And then Orko says something to the effect of it'll be even more horrible if it happens to us, which is just the most privileged statement I have ever heard. Evil Lynn and Skeletor are evil. It's literally in their name, but they're not wrong about the collateral damage that's caused to the villagers that live in Eternia by the struggle between Skeletor and, and the king and those folks. Even beyond how awful that punishment sounds, this episode, if I were 10 years old, would probably have given me nightmares. The creeping blackness that's chasing them through the corridors, absorbing the castle while they talk about this horrible punishment. Yeah, it's grim. It is super grim. Them describing that that's how they would punish criminals back in the days. It's a brutal way to go. Until it squeezes out the oxygen and also literally devours you whole. Yikes. We cut over to He-Man who throws off a group of robots. Ram-Man also takes them out in an uncharacteristically useful way. I mean, with his head still, but... Yeah, he still rams into it, gives himself another concussion. One robot chases Stratos into the sky, but he tricks it into flying into the side of a volcano. And it just keeps drilling its way into the volcano and then gets into the middle of the volcano. And I'm not an expert on physics or geology, but... I don't think it would explode at the top like it did. I think it would explode at the side where the robot tried in the middle and straight towards Stratos. Battlecat is in a Grecian wrestling pose with one of the robots, hands sort of locked together, squatting at each other. Oh uh, yeah, he's like, I can't go through, can't go back, might as well go up. And then he says some other line about how cats always land on their feet. Or the difference between robots and cats is that cats always land on their feet. Yeah, it's a great one-liner. Got him, Battle Cat. He-Man follows it up with, your robots are no more than scrap metal, Skeletor. But Skeletor distracts He-Man by showing him and the rest of the gang a vision of the creeping Horak in the palace chasing Tila, the king, the queen, everybody. Distracts him long enough for Skeletor to pull in one of the most Scooby-Doo scenes I've ever seen, pull the conveniently placed lever, which opens a trapdoor and sends all the good people tumbling down into some caverns. They all conveniently gathered at exactly the same spot that happened to also be exactly where the trapdoor was. Just so happens. I really like how when he was showing them the the scenes of their friends in struggle, like how it was punctuated. The dun dun. Dun, I don't know how it went, but it was like some done and just kept doing it. It would change it. It just, there was that. And they, even though like the beginning of the next scene, it kept doing that for like two minutes. The music is pretty evocative. You mentioned the earlier like swelling romance music for the King and man at arms. They remix the He-Man theme all the time too, in different ways. 
is like a exciting version. There's the transformation version at the beginning of the episode when it's panning over the countryside. There's like a soft orchestral version of the He-Man theme as we look down at the peaceful valley and the, the village below. Back to the action, Skeletor turns from his conveniently placed lever, a trapdoor situation, to a conveniently placed wheel and turns it. And this releases a bunch of water underneath the temple. And then when he smack talks uh, He-Man and says, there's only one way out, but many ways to get lost or something, and you're never going to help your friends in time. And then later, they're going off to do whatever else because He-Man's tied up. And Beast-Man's like, well, what if he finds a way out? And Skelter hits him, there is no way out. <laughs> so ominous. It's Trapjawed, though. Beast-Man actually does not make an appearance in this episode. I done goofed. Trapjaw shows up out of nowhere. He's just there literally for just the scene. Like he's not there later. He's there briefly later. Here he's holding the spell stone, I guess, so that Skeletor can gesture triumphantly. He's going to have his arms freeze for that. Hemian tries to punch the wall as they run from the water, tries to punch the wall to break out, but it doesn't work. That... I found to be so shocking because they were already playing the He-Man's victorious music at that point. Oh, he's going to punch his way through the wall. This is when he does it. But no, he does not punch through the wall. But he does discover that it's hollow somehow. And like the ground's hollow. So the water rushing towards him, he solves by taking a boulder and hurling it at the ground to cause there to be a cavern to open up. And the water flows into that, which is the first thing he solves with the boulder this episode. Suddenly a door opens... And the deus ex machina this time is uh, the fire people, who are literally people made of fire. Red, semi-translucent outlines. And they do not like outsiders, as was inferred before by He-Man. This part of the episode is pretty frantic feeling, because we keep cutting from He-Man confronting Skeletor, him and his friends running through the underground cave, over to Tila and the rest of those folks running away from the creeping Horak, trying different ways to escape or stop it, just cutting back and forth really quickly. It was actually pretty effective. It definitely was frenetic. Every scene, like you cut over to the Royals running and like they'd just they'd be going through another door and that door would shut and the door wouldn't be enough to hold it and they'd have to run some more. And the Horak would reach out and almost grab everything and then you just cut over to the uh, He-Man and company fighting literal beings of fire and not really succeeding until they do which is pretty much how a he-man episode works helios king of the fire people accuses he-man of stealing the spellstone. they start to fight he-man tells his friends not to hurt the fire people which does not seem to be a problem because the fire people kick their ass handily battle cat gets touched by one of them their fire cat dog thing and it punches him knocks him out there's a fire pterodactyl that goes after stratos and breathes fire at him ram man does something useless yeah it's just surrounded by fire people i think yeah i guess the one that fights he-man they kind of like lock swords for a second but he-man doesn't really fight back he-man does say i'm not going to fight you helios and then they immediately clash swords He-Man knocks the Fire King's sword out of his hand. It lands perilously close to a lake of fire. A familiar-looking lake of fire, because then the serpent monster thing jumps out and grabs Helios. The serpent monster, with many tentacles, is very slowly, conveniently slowly, 
drawing Helios toward its gaping maw, and then... A second time this episode, a boulder solves a problem. He-Man chucks it a tentacle monster's mouth, and Helios gets free. Yeah, good job, He-Man. Two questions. One, how does Helios, the king of this land, how is he caught unawares by the serpent monster, which clearly lives in his land? Like, he should know that that thing's out there. Two, he's literally made of fire. They're incorporeal before. Battle Cat tried to, like, swipe one, and it went right through it. How is this dude caught in the maw of a giant serpent monster? I don't have answers to either of those questions. Just chalk it up to the great mysteries of the universe. Okay, Helios could, in the heat of battle, trying to retrieve his sword to continue fighting He-Man, have forgotten about the fire creature in the Lake of Fire. I guess that's fair. I don't know about the incorporeality part. I guess if the fire people are native to this land, maybe the serpent monsters evolved to be able to eat them so he could grab them with his plasma tentacles. Yeah, that's reasonable. That sounds plausible. But since He-Man saves Helios, Helios is like, well, you saved me, so I guess you're a good guy. Go find the spellstone, please. Yeah, we cut over to Man-at-Arms hiding everybody behind the last super secure hydraulic door. As the creeping Horax starts pounding on the other side, we cut back over to the people now wise to Skeletor and Evil Lynn's plot confronting them. Skeletor is not too worried about this until He-Man shows up. Skeletor asserts that he's going to sword fight He-Man, takes one swipe, and He-Man immediately disarms him. Yeah. You notice they have the same sword? His sword looks the same as He-Man's in that scene. I did notice that, and I found a replacement for Amazon Super Facts X-Ray, whatever. There's a whole He-Man wiki that has the same, probably where Amazon gets its information, actually, has the same information, errors and trivia, stuff like that. This is the only episode that we see Skeletor with that sword. And it was originally planned for some more arc about He-Man and Skeletor fighting or something like that. But he just doesn't have a sword ever again. Yeah, I guess He-Man really disarms him and bats it far away or something. Evelyn summons a storm, which incapacitates He-Man and everybody else. So He-Man tries to call the Stratos to fly down there and get it. But I think Stratos is doing a very good job. Because before he gets there, the Surfs decide... I keep calling them Surfs. Villagers is much more respectful. The villagers decide that they've had enough of this and that they can help out. So they manage to grab the Spellstone just straight out of Evelyn's hands. Just like yoinked it. Then Skeletor reveals that only the Spellstone can stop the Horak and commands it to return to the region of flame. It starts just shooting off, I guess, to return home. He-Man uses super speed. He uses super speed and runs after it and just catches it and pushes it back. Like, just catches it, really. And then does a literal heave-ho. Yeah, he calls out, heave-ho. Throws it back at the palace where it explodes but maybe not explodes but the creeping horror disappears it just straight up disappears skeletor and trap jaw and i guess evil lynn although i don't know if she's in the shot use this opportunity to escape stratos notes that they've run off and he-man mentions oh we'll run into them again i bet again not actively trying to chase them down he knows they'll show up again so he's counting on them 
to show up, I guess that's when they'll finally arrest them and put them under lock and key. I am starting to feel like the complaints that Evil Lynn roused in the villagers have more and more merit because the king and his various powers are doing nothing to really ensure the safety of the land. They respond, as Orko notes especially, when they themselves are threatened. But they don't go out of their way to make sure everybody's living a peaceful, healthy life. They pretty much only show up when shit's on fire because Skeletor did something. And usually that's because Skeletor is trying to get their stuff. He-Man also gives a nice speech about how you don't need magic powers to be kind of like a pre-moral, almost. You don't need magic powers to be a hero. You just need guts. You forgot that, Skeletor. Well, I will say that apart from at the very end, Evelyn was caught unawares by them. She recognized that like the power was within the people because she went to the people to rouse them up, try to get them to overthrow the king or cause a riot, recognizing that they had power in a mob. And it was really her own... I don't know if it's hubris or vanity or what that caused her, instead of being wrapped up in Tila's bolo, falling over and further inciting the mob against a heartless king who had one of his people push over an old woman, she takes the opportunity to transform back into evil Lynn and whatever. But otherwise, you're right. She was right on the money. The little... He-Man and the Masters of the Universe Coda, as they're all once again back at the castle, enjoying a peaceful afternoon. Orko tries to summon a rainbow. It doesn't go very well. Everybody laughs. Ha ha ha. And they get a little nice ending theme music. And we cut to the moral. Alright. It's obviously not you don't need superpowers to be a hero. Because that was laid on too thick for it to be that. The other only guess I have based on the episode, understanding people of different cultures, because I think their interactions with the fire tribe. So yeah, I'm going to go with that. Understanding people of different cultures. There is some support for that in the episode. There is not a lot of support for the actual moral, which is that practical jokes can go badly. So you should be careful and consider not playing tricks on your friends because, and I quote, you could lose a finger, an arm, or an eye from a practical joke on poorly. Oh, wow. Yeah, this episode is grim. Really scaring kids straight here. That, like, he doesn't even pull a prank in this episode. At the very end with the rainbow, no, that's not a prank. It's just bad magic. Orko should listen to this advice instead of pouring glasses of water on people's heads, but maybe they're just trying to remind kids not to try to do what Orko does at home. They lean on Orko's magic pretty heavily through these first five episodes. Not for anything useful, just for comic relief or... Classic Orko shenanigans. So apart from the fact that this is a cartoon, why is the creeping Horak happened to be linked to the spellstone? If Skeletor and Evelyn hadn't retrieved the spellstone to start the storm to get the creeping Horak, if they had gotten the creeping Horak, there would have been no way to get rid of it because the spellstone would have been just a legend or whatever. They knew what it was and they used it regularly as criminal punishment in like the distant past or maybe even the relatively recent past because the king knows about it, right? recent enough that he's aware of it. So there should be some way to control it. 
so it doesn't just keep going or is it like it sets on a building and it consumes whatever's in the building and then it goes back in its little box i wondered how they got it back into the box after it engulfed a building ate up all the air and suffocated the poor person <laughs> every time we talk about exactly what this terrible that is cruel and unusual and they don't even say what crimes it was used for right it was just criminals they do say the worst criminals okay that's fair i guess that's vague enough that that implies that there's like murder and rape on eternia yeah or it's a still a relative term and the worst criminals are the ones who riot against the state <laughs> yeah but really the spellstone like i guess it destroyed the horak but it, I think it's just because it was super powerful that it was able to do that. Unless anything of the equal power level should have been able to destroy it with zap powers, because that's basically what it was, zappy powers. That's what you would maybe assume. Skeletor does say you can't trust Skeletor all that far, but Skeletor does say that the only thing that can stop the creeping Horak is the spellstone before he sends it zooming back off to the land of the flame. In this very same episode, he told T-Man that there was one way out when there was no way out. What kind of dastardly villain would do that? So I'm sure he lied again. And I mean, either way, in the context of the episode, it might not have been the only way in a bigger sense, but in that moment, with how much time they had left, it probably was the only thing that could save them. Yeah, that's true. So there's multiple people that acknowledge the king's existence this episode. My ghost theory is gone. Unless it's a really big shared illusion. Not only did Man-at-Arms talk to him, but the entire kingdom was like yelling at specifically him. The first three episodes, he doesn't talk and is not really acknowledged by anybody, but he's starting to come into his own a little bit. He even gets some monologue and exposit this episode. We got a little window into another political entity in the fire tribe or the people, the fire people tribe. The fire people is what they're called in the region of flame they're separate from the kingdom of eternia so the kingdom of eternia must not extend the whole planet which we knew because he didn't they don't control snake mountain or anything but now there's an actual other country because tribal implies that they're like loosely tied together so we've got avion where stratos is maybe from we've got the fire people from the region of flame which is a very lazily named country it really is. And we've got the Oracle, who's a free agent. I would say Castle Grayskull, I was thinking about this, is like separate from the Kingdom of Eternia. And I think much more of a neutral party than I would say the Kingdom of Eternia is, right? Or would want to be neutral. In like a classic Dungeons & Dragons druid way. I was going to make a different nerd reference to civilization and call them like a city-state. But the druid one is pretty good, especially because the sorceress turns into a hawk. I was also thinking it because one of the clear values that He-Man, as the champion of Castle Grayskull shows, is like this value of all life, no matter what. Like by saving Skeletor's life and Merman's life, even when they're actively at war, more or less. So that being what Castle Grayskull chooses in its champion probably means they're neutral good sort of thing where there's this general sense of the value of life no matter what which is not necessarily like the kingdom of attorney's interest because they're like more of a political entity 
that needs to maintain its own power as a state. There's also like another glimpse into the political landscape is like how easily the villagers were rabbled up. Razzled? Riled. There we go. Riled up by Evelyn. It was like the drop of a hat, like right away. She said one sentence and they're like, oh yeah. One storm, some lightning. I mean, people's houses catch on fire, but that could still be a natural disaster. And Man-at-Arms and Teela are there trying to help. And all, all it took was one old crone saying, it's the king's fault. They're being punished. The elders of Eternia are punishing us for them dabbling with all that fancy technology. That gives me the sense that Randor's rule has not been going on that long. It seems like this is a new power in Eternia. The elders are still fresh in people's memory. The creeping horror punishment is still fresh. I want to know more about the elders. So are they like the old rulers of Eternia? Or are they like the gods of Eternia? Hopefully we get some more information about those folks. This is a bunch of technology that Man-at-Arms is experimenting with. That means that this is all new stuff. All of Man-at-Arms stuff has never been made before. Like the attack track, that peak of technology, that bleeding edge stuff. That's never been done or seen before. So it's been magic up till now. You know, what changed to make it happen now? Queen Marlena from Earth showed up and with a spaceship and Earth technology. And she's a space scientist who knows stuff. Is this a situation where technology, the advancement of humanity replaces the belief in ancient gods and old ways? This is the end of the three-part NBC miniseries Merlin, where they defeat Queen Mab with uh, no longer believing in magic. Is that how they do that? I've never seen that, Merlin. You have to. It's incredible. Is that the one with the like teenage Merlin, or is that the one with uh, Sam Neill? No, it's Sam Neill, dinosaur wizard. Okay. Yeah, I have to see. I've seen like parts of it. I haven't seen the whole thing. Yeah, I want to watch that again, actually. Marlena crashes to the planet with this wondrous spaceship. She finds some people that are interested in learning about technology, Duncan, man-at-arms, and they slowly start replacing the old magic of Eternia with their new experiments. And then someone must have sold some secrets to Skeletor, because that's how he got his robot army. And it is very realistic for a populace that all of a sudden their ruling class has a bunch of new fancy technology. There's a lot of bad stuff that's happening that they can like loosely correlate to that that would like riot against their king because of misunderstanding of the technology. All this new fancy stuff is not like the old ways where we kill people by slowly suffocating them with demon monsters. <laughs> and given this is the first episode that we've seen a sizable number of villagers... The last time was uh, the poor farmer who was farming with his cow before immediately getting turned to stone by Skeletor. But it doesn't seem like the experimentation in the palace has really yielded a better quality of life for them. Yeah, it hasn't really trickled down, as it were, because they're not using any of it, are they? The guy who was turned into stone, he was using like a plow and an oxen. And Man-at-Arms has developed a weather-changing satellite, but... They don't have a sprinkler fire suppression in their thatch-roofed buildings. 
all sorts of lasers and rockets and blowy uppy stuff. And no fire hydrants. And no fire hydrants. Do you think they have plumbing? I would bet not. The Romans had plumbing, right? But then the English didn't in London until the 1800s, more or less. People just pooped in the river. Yeah. I'm sure it's more complicated than that. Anyways, what what else did you have? Evil Lynn calls Skeletor skull face at one point near the end of the episode when their plan is falling apart. What is it with He-Man, the show's fixation on face-based insults? Yeah, like toad face, fish face, skull face, fur face. It's all over the place. This goes, everybody like belittles each other by calling them like pet names all the time. And face is just one of the easiest ways to do that. Yeah. It's not really a pet name, but it is a belittling name. Yeah, but a very kids gloves belittling name. Yeah, it's like saying butt face, but in a nicer way. Yeah, I think that's about all I have. That's all I got. All right. See you all next time on the Attorney Review.